Hey, Rachel, how many Guthrie kids are there? <laughs> You're joking, right? No. I, I have no idea. I have no idea how many Guthrie kids there are. Well, okay, so let's try to work this out logically. We know Sam for sure, and later Paige and Joshua. Well, Joshua's actually the most consistent non-Sam of the Guthrie kids. Well, the hair color and birth order notwithstanding. Anyway, he's been named in pretty much every incarnation of the family, I think, and I'm not sure any of the others actually have. Wait, well, what about Paige? I mean, she was a main character for years. Husk? She actually doesn't show up, well, at least not with a name until X-Force, and she doesn't take over as the second oldest Guthrie kid until way later. Wait, what? I thought she was in earlier stuff, just with brown hair. No, that's usually Joelle, or possibly occasionally Melody. And Melody's one of the twins? No, no, the twins are Lewis and Cassie, but that's only ever really confirmed in Age of Apocalypse. And Lucinda is Ma Guthrie, right? Right. And Sam's dad is Thomas. Sometimes. Sometimes? Sometimes. Sometimes Ty. Okay. Or Zeke. What?! I'm Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 61st episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So we are coming back to the New Mutants this time around, and it's kind of a weird collection of stories. We're going to be talking about five issues, all of which are character-focused one-shots. Well, they're kind of connected one-shots, because as we last covered, the, the last time we saw the New Mutants, they were splitting up, going in a bunch of different directions. Danny was going back home to her parents. Uh, Rain was headed back to Muir Island and Moira McTaggart. I believe Bobby had headed to South America to see his mom. Yeah, and this, of course, is all in the wake of the big event that happened in Uncanny X-Men number 200, which was where Charles Xavier left for space to be treated by space people for terrible non-space injuries and left the school in the hands of his old foe, Magneto. Right, Magneto's been running the school for a while, and his first few months there were terrible and were marked primarily by, you know, the Beyonder killing and reviving all of the new mutants and then wiping everyone's memories of that. And Magneto's so utterly despairing about his ability to help these kids recover that he ended up sending them to Emma Frost at the Massachusetts Academy. You know, I've said this before, but I feel really bad for Magneto. Like, he takes over in a really difficult job, and the first thing that happens is Secret Wars 2. Nobody deserves that. Nobody. Yeah. Anyway, that's all pretty much uh, worked out okay. I mean, the New Mutants were sort of cured of their mental ennui and afflictions by a combination of Emma and Magneto, and they're all back at the school at this point. Well, they're going to be by the end of this arc. The five issues we're looking at are, again, as you said, mostly individual character-focused one-shots, but they're also how the band gets back together. Absolutely. Now, I, I do want to talk a little bit about this era sort of in a general sense, because we really saw a big uh, closing to a chapter of the X-Men universe when Xavier left in Uncanny X-Men and in New Mutants and with the launch of X-Factor that was all around the same time. Right. What we're seeing right now, what this is heralding, what it's part of is a shift from very universe-driven stories to very character-driven stories. Not just stories focusing on individual characters, but stories that find their hooks in characters' lives and their personalities and their actions rather than, oh my god, a big cosmic entity just landed through the roof. And I think that's true in all of the X-Books to a degree, but especially in New Mutants. And we're really going to see that voice in New Mutants for quite a long time, that sort of thematic focus. It's worth noting, too, that in New Mutants, and I think also in X-Men, a lot of those individual character-focused stories 
are some of the most memorable and some of kind of the signature stories of this era. I'm thinking, you know, the Barry Windsor Smith Storm and Wolverine stories. And in this, there are a couple issues we're going to be covering this time that I think are among the definitive New Mutants issues, or at least are treated as such. Oh, yeah. Of the five issues we're covering, three of them rank in probably my top ten as far as New Mutants. Wow. Yeah. Now, uh, creatively, we, of course, have Chris Claremont writing as he writes pretty much everything. But interestingly enough, he is only about a year away at this point from turning the book over to Louise Simonson, who's also going to take over X-Factor from Bob Layton. Right. And around that time, Claremont is going to be picking up a different X-Book as well, but we're going to see the line shifting its balance very, very much as Simonson basically becomes the co-architect of that universe. And art-wise, we currently have Jackson Geis in uh, New Mutants. He was the main artist only for about 10 issues, but I think he was probably one of the more solid and recognizable ones, largely because of who he was mostly inked by, that being Kyle Baker. Right. Now, we talked about Baker some, I think, last time we discussed the New Mutants. He is a guy who is known for a very, God, what I think of as a very commercial illustration style, but he's also a very, very expressive cartoonist. He's best known in Marvel for the little It's Genetic single panel gag strips that showed up in the back of a lot of the X-Men comics, which you should look up if you haven't, because they're really, really charming. The work I first encountered him on is Why I Hate Saturn. You might also have heard his name via You Are Here, The Cowboy Wally Show, or a bunch of other stuff. Uh, He did a really, really highly acclaimed run on Plastic Man, too. Mm Mm-hmm. But anyway, all of that background set up, let's go ahead and dive into the issues. Okay, so we're starting with New Mutants 41. This is a story called Way of the Warrior, and this is the Mirage story of the bunch. Now, this takes place concurrent to the Massachusetts Academy arc. The New Mutants had been killed and revived by the Beyonder, and Warlock was doing fine because Warlock sort of functions on a wholly different level with regards to life and death, and he stuck around with Magneto. Danny was doing okay for a lot of reasons, mostly just because she's tough as balls. And also because Thor, in the form of an Asgardian frog god, gave her a pep talk and a stable, because these things happen in the Marvel Universe as they should. That too, and again, being a Norse Valkyrie, which we're going to get to a lot this issue, kind of changes her relationship to life and death. And so she decided she got increasingly frustrated with Magneto failing to handle things and his eventual decision to send the rest of the team to the Massachusetts Academy, and basically said, screw this, I'm going home. Yeah. Which is kind of a big deal for her, because for a long time, home did not involve her parents. They were busy being trapped as sort of a mystical bear god. We got to that many, many episodes ago. It's complicated. It's complicated, yeah. Um, But now, you know, her parents are back. They're human again. They're just living their lives over in uh, Colorado. And she flies on her Valkyrie steed, Brightwind, to go see them. Now, we brought up the Valkyrie thing a couple times. And this is something I want to discuss in a little bit more depth, because it's a weird intersection. This is something that's actually come up in a couple recent articles by um, James Lisk, whose name I may or may not be pronouncing right, sorry, at Comics Alliance, talking about American indigenous characters in comics and the weirdness of taking a character who's one of very, very few Native American superheroes and making her primary secondary power be rooted in Norse mythology. Yeah, it's a very strange mix. Now, I think on a micro level, in terms of the character and in terms of the book, it's fascinating. I'm biased, to be fair, because I love the Norse stuff in the Marvel Universe. But on a more kind of macro sociological level, it gets a little weird. Yeah, and one of the things that I like most about New Mutants 41 is that Danny actually addresses that face on. It doesn't change the weirdness of it, and it definitely doesn't alter the larger cultural context of that, which is something that I want to discuss this in more depth, but I feel like it's something that neither of us is really qualified to comment on in the way that I would like to see it commented on. 
Hopefully we'll be able to run something on the site about that. But I'm going to say for now, it's nice seeing Denny address it and seeing also specifically the ways she takes the Valkyrie powers and sets, which, you know, the Norse gods and the Norse mythology and the Marvel Universe are such an odd thing because they're concretely factual. Like, they're just real things. Right. You don't not believe in Thor because Thor is right there knocking a bad guy over with a giant freaking mallet. And the extent to which that translates to other religious or mythic entities really wildly varies. The relationships of various mythologies, various cultural underpinnings to this universe are weird and they're very, very uneven. And that informs all of this. But also, she's a character who is very heavily rooted as a person. And in terms of the way she chooses to present herself and contextualize her life and experience in her cultural roots, she's Cheyenne. She's made that part of her superhero costume. It's very, very much part of her identity. It's very much part of her public and personal identity. And it's very much part of the way she interacts with being a Valkyrie. And that's something that I really, really like. Again, I I don't think it changes sort of the oddness and the discordancy and again, the larger conversation about the cultural context of this. But I think it is really significant that it doesn't overwrite anything. It doesn't overwrite who she is. Instead, she takes this new set of powers, this new mystic identity and situates it very, very firmly in her own roots and heritage. And in that regard, she actually kind of reminds me of Storm. Storm is a character who is lots of things. You can't really give a good elevator pitch for Storm and really capture her character. And I think Danielle Moonstar is the exact same way. She's a product of many cultures that overlap in strange ways. And she has her own set of personality traits, which, while they are informed by those cultures, are also very much her own. Speaking of cultures that interact in strange ways, how much do you love how utterly matter-of-fact her parents are about the fact that their kid just showed up on a winged horse? Right, they're like, oh, winged horse? Yeah, yeah, try spending years in a freaking demon bear, daughter. Jeez, man. Well, they casually mentioned, you're going to have to tell us about that at some point. But <laughs> Yeah, they're actually yeah, pretty chill. I really like her parents, and you don't see very much of them in the comics. She grew up mostly without them, so they're not in a lot of her significant flashbacks. But when we do see bits and pieces of them, I love how chill they are. Totally. So, yeah, she lands and says hello and pretty quickly goes to stable Brightwind, as much as one stables a, you know, Asgardian Pegasus, and falls asleep. When she wakes up the next day, her parents are already heading out, and so she heads off to the mall on her own just to buy some clothes that aren't all gross from flying across the country and spend some time by herself. Right. Her family, they're ranchers. There's a bunch of work they have to get done before a big blizzard comes, which Mm -hmm. is going to be important later. At the mall, Danny wanders around by herself, tries on clothing, basically has her own solo version of the classic Claremont Mall scene, which I really like, actually. It's a great character moment. And then she runs into a gentleman by the name of Pat Roberts, who is a kid she's known from way, way back. And he is a raging dick. As this confrontation occurs with him basically, you know, talking about what a freak she is, being really racist about it, both kind of subtly about her being a mutant, but more overtly about her being Native American, we learn a little bit from her thought bubbles about the fact that they used to be super, super tight. And when her mutant powers first manifested, which at the time were limited to showing people's greatest fears and kind of psychic holographic form, they manifested on him at the dinner table with his family. Wow, yeah. I could see that putting a crimp in a relationship. And not only did that happen, but her response to it, she just ran. She didn't talk to him again about it. She didn't stick around to make sure things were going to be okay. She just panicked and ran. And he has never forgiven her for this. Yeah, and I mean, it's certainly traumatic. I certainly don't want to forgive him for being racist, but I can understand why he's pissed off. Yeah, he's justified in being really angry at her. He is absolutely not justified in the ways in which he expresses it. She continues to do her thing. She's pretty down about the whole thing, and she actually is a little worried about him coming after her because he's being very violent. And as they're fighting, something happens that we've seen happen a few times before with her, which is a manifestation of her Valkyrie powers. She sees an image, a specter of death appear over his head, which is something that happens with people who are about to die. 
And it's not too long before we find out what the deal with that is, because an emergency call comes in over the radio. Pat Roberts, who apparently has crashed in a blizzard and is asking for help. So Danny flies out to find him. You know, the phones are dead. He can't raise the police. Uh, he's just calling out on his CB radio. The signal's fading in the blizzard. And she finds where he's crashed his truck and drags him into a cave and then goes out to confront what's come for him. She sees some images that come from Pat himself of first him attacking her with an axe and then the two of them getting married and realizes these are both things he wants. He loves her and hates her simultaneously. And she realizes he's going to die and she just essentially King Lear style challenges death itself like, no, you are going through me if you want to take him. Something I think is a theme that's going to come back again in this arc, and it's going to come back with a vengeance in number 45. You know, actually, if I had to choose a single overarching theme for all of this, it's no simple villains. Yeah, totally. There are a lot of really awful confrontations in this era of New Mutants, and a lot of characters who seem like unambiguous jerks. And sometimes it's a member of the New Mutants. And one of the strengths of this team and these characters in this era and I think one of the overarching and running themes of the book is that it's never quite that simple. Yep, people are just people when it comes down to it, and they all do things for reasons. And so, yeah, she heads outside with Pat, you know, mostly conscious, and uh, sees that same specter of death, which in this case is sort of a, a grim and somewhat racist cowboy. How much do I love this? So she's going to see death in a couple different ways over this issue and over a long time. This is part of her Valkyrie power set, that she can see death and that she can challenge death. Mm -hmm. This is a thing Valkyries can do, or at least that Marvel Valkyries can do. This death is a classic Old West movie style gunslinger, you know, with the language and the patter and the look and the screwed up racism that goes with that. Mm -hmm. And she challenges him and she wins. Yeah, she, in a gunfight, shoots down death and goes back and gets Pat to a hospital and waits and waits and waits because he's comatose. Right. As it turns out, and what we see a hint of much earlier in the issue is that Pat is diabetic and he has been not only trapped in the blizzard, but trapped in a blizzard going into insulin shock. Yeah. His beer fell on it in the uh, truck, which Whoops. was part of why he crashed also. Yeah. And so she's sitting next to this old Native American woman in the waiting room of the hospital who quickly identifies herself subtly also as death. And talks to Danny. This kid is going to die. What is keeping him alive in sort of a, a liminal, not quite dead state is the force of Danny's will as a Valkyrie. And she talks Danny very gently into letting him go. Your courage does you proud, as does your loyalty. But a true warrior, a true human being, must also realize which battles to wage and which to pass by. You may keep me from Patrick Roberts' side, but you cannot heal him. He will never awaken. For his sake, Moonstar, let go. I think the two forms death appears in really significant here, seeing death first as a very traditional, stereotyped, cinematic adversary. And then death as a natural process, as an ally, and as a source of wisdom and change. And Danny does sort of realize that, yeah, this version of death is right. And it wouldn't really be fair to keep him in this vegetative state. And so she decides to let go. And as soon as she does, he flatlines. So that's that one, man. I talked before about the issues of New Mutants that had stuck with me hardest. And this is definitely, definitely one of them. The showdown between Danny and Death outside the cave, especially, and that incarnation, the cowboy death. Absolutely. 
And yeah, I mean, I'm realizing we were talking about this earlier, Rachel, that we get sort of jokey and funny with our X-Men issues and our New Mutants issues are very often much more serious. And I always feel weird about that. But the fact is the subject matter is just a lot more serious. I think for me, part of what paradoxically makes it more serious is that there's stories about kids and teenagers. I feel like there are a lot of jokes you can make about a story about grownups and especially grownup superheroes, especially grownup superheroes in the larger shared universe superhero milieu that I don't want to make about kids. You know, the amped up to 11 thing with superheroes is funny, but it rings a lot truer when those superheroes are 14 and 15 and 16, because yeah, everything is amped up to 11. And these stories feel personal in ways that I think similar stories about adult characters might not. I completely agree. Our next story focuses on Cannonball, and again, it's about going home. And that means, because it's about Cannonball and it's about the Guthries, that it's going to be the most heartwarming damn story of all time. As we have discussed, Sam Guthrie is the best kid. I like that too, actually, that that we very much go back and forth between the let's tear out your heart, throw it on the floor, and stamp on it stories, and the aww, warm, fuzzy ones. Yup. So, uh, yeah, this one starts out, you know, any, almost any good X-Men or New Mutant story starts out with an intro that just throws you right in the middle of something. Yeah, New Mutants are all about the cold opens, and they're especially, and especially around Sam, all about the wild space opera cold opens. Yeah, so, I mean, it's him and the other New Mutants, like, fighting these alien assassins who are trying to attack Lila Shaney and her band, who are putting on this performance in the middle of an alien temple. And they save them and Sam and Lila kiss, but oh my god, suddenly they're on the porch of Sam's mom's house and she opens the door and is shocked and horrified and Sam wakes up because it is just a really awesome anxiety dream. Yeah, so he's actually on the bus heading out to Cumberland, Kentucky, where he comes from. I would like to take a moment to say that I am personally deeply jealous because my anxiety dreams just suck. Like, they never involve awesome space rock opera battles. You should work on that. I should. I think I just need to find an intergalactic thief rock star girlfriend. Sam heads back, um, partially by bus, and then he, you know, uses his cannonball powers to fly the rest of the way. And the first thing he does is stop by the gravestone of his father, who we learned about his death in New Mutants graphic novel number one. Right. This is his dad, who is a coal miner. You know, Sam was supposed to go to college. He had a scholarship and he stayed home to, to work and support his family, which is how he ended up getting a job with the Hellfire Club, which is indirectly how he ended up on the New Mutants. Exactly. And so he's, you know, telling his father all about what's going on, like with Magneto, with Lila. Uh, he refers to his father even in death as Sir, which I find very charming. It's very, very much a, a Southern thing. He's talking about how he's not sure if his mother's going to approve of Lila. And it turns out she's been here for at least part of this and says, she must be a nice girl, Samuel, else you wouldn't like her. Oh, man. Ma Guthrie is so great. Ma Guthrie is just consistently going to be the just badass mom with a shotgun whose kids you do not mess with and who loves everyone fiercely no matter what character. Like, she's so good. She's wonderful. She actually asks Sam if Lila sings gospel or country because maybe she's heard her on the Grand Old Opry. And Sam's like, uh, she's British. I should say, too, I owe a credit for the cold open. Lucinda Guthrie very rarely appears the same way twice in X-Men comics. Her hair color and cut changed, I think, every time you saw her for roughly her first five or ten appearances. There's a great breakdown of this and of the the wildly changing lineup of the Guthrie family on on UncannyXMen.net, which is where we did a lot of the research for that cold open. I recommend going and looking at it because it's a point where, honestly, I would just give up rationalizing, throw up my hands and be like, yep, no one wrote this down in the series Bible for a really long time. See, I think a missed opportunity in Secret Wars was uh, the fact that they don't have a different version of Lucinda Guthrie in every single version of Battleworld. Or a different lineup of the Guthrie family because the siblings change wildly in both name and appearance in pretty much every version. I know Joelle's in this one. The main one we see around is Josh, who later gets called Jay, but who is the most consistent Guthrie kid other than Sam. 
Yeah, and uh, speaking of Josh, he's in sort of his rebellious teenager phase, but part of that is that he's worried he might be a mutant, and he doesn't want to have to go away like Sam did. He doesn't want the world to be coming after him. You know, for the most part, I would say this is a narrative conceit, but considering what's going to happen to this kid when his powers actually do manifest, I think it's a reasonable fear. Yeah, there is a storyline called She Lies with Angels by Chuck Austin, which is kind of a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, except with angels whose blood can heal people. And it's terrible. You know, I'm going to go ahead and say that it's worse than the Draco. Oh, but for right now, we don't have to worry about angel blood because Josh is a much simpler character. He's just, you know, an angry teenager. Ma Guthrie talks to Sam about this, about how troubled Josh is and how to her it doesn't make any sense. I mean, the anti-mutant hysteria out there for her seems just like the way people are prejudiced against uh, the mountain folk in Kentucky or the way they're prejudiced against Ray Holder's people, uh, meaning black people in general. And I like that. I like the way she phrases that because she lives in such a small town, such a personal world that for her, like every group is represented by someone she knows, someone that she cares about. I love that. And Sam is really torn at this point. What we see with him I want to go on a long tangent about Sam Guthrie and the concept of code switching, which I'm not going to do. But Sam is trying to go home after spending a long time somewhere very else. He's got really complex feelings about, you know, the idea that maybe he kind of abandoned his family because he had been taking care of them. He'd been, you know, basically the second adult in the household after his dad's death. Coming back now, it kind of feels like he's trying to convince himself that he should stay. Mm hmm. And as this is all going on, and he in fact does decide after a little while, I've got to stay home, I've got to take care of Josh, I've got to be the man of the household. After that, he uh, meets up with Lila briefly because he's preparing to have her come and meet his family, and he's super nervous about it, of course. In the Charlotte airport, and I gotta say, man, this whole story makes me homesick for Appalachia. Yeah, we spent six years in Appalachia, and it was wonderful. This is like home territory. Mm Mm-hmm. And she shows Sam very excitedly the gift that she has for Ma Guthrie which is this sort of crystal statue. It's Anne McCaffrey fan art. It is. She describes it as a singing crystal from Ballybran out of the Kilachandra range near Dragonhold, all of which are various Anne McCaffrey references, which I love. But yeah, the deal is it's this immensely uh, valuable, beautiful artifact that will accompany Ma Guthrie perfectly whenever she sings while she's like doing chores or whatever. And Sam assumes, somewhat reasonably, I think, given what Lila does, that it's something she's stolen. And she's furious. She's like, this was a gift of love, Sam. That's the only thing that should matter. And Sam replies, love don't mean nothing if it's built on lies. And as he does this, the figurine cracks. Like this flaw just like pings in the center of its chest. And Lila's furious and basically says, hey, well, I guess we're done here and leaves. And she is entirely right in doing so. I mean, Sam is being a complete dick here because he's scared that he's lost his place. And so he's doubling down extra hard on what he sees as sort of the most central, limited, tight end values of his childhood. Yeah. And so uh, he doesn't really sleep. He has a confrontation with Josh and he's just sort of at sea. He doesn't know what to do with his life. He doesn't know who he is. And eventually in a diner, his mother runs into him. And I just want to read through all of this. It's a lot of dialogue, but it's perfect. And I should note, we're we're not going to do the accents. Penny for your thoughts, Sam? Mom, I was just seeing this town kind of like a favorite broken-in old shoe that ain't been worn in a while. Suddenly, when you put it on, it hurts, because your foot's changed its shape some in between. No matter how much you want, it'll never be so comfortable again. Are you surprised? Ma'am? Did you truly believe you'd return from school, even a university, as opposed to Professor Xavier's, the same as you left? I suppose I'd hoped so. Never happened, Samuel. Not for someone with your hunger for knowledge. You've too much of my blood in you, whereas Josh takes after your father. He's content where he is. Take him out of this valley, away from the land he loves. He'll wither and die. And I won't? 
Boy, you can't look at a ridge, but you hanker to see what's on the other side. You're a wanderer, full of bursting with dreams. Why else read all those science fiction books? Why else, Sam, would your letters be jam-packed with such a sense of wonder and excitement? Other lands, Sam? Other worlds? Can you really give them up for us? I'm oldest, Mama. It's my responsibility. Excuse me, young man, but last time I counted, I had a few years and more on you. My being a woman doesn't make me any less capable of running this household and caring for this family, and I'll keep on so long as I'm able. That ever changes, then you can exercise your responsibility. But till it does, Samuel Zachary, you'll heed me. Living your own life is what's important, being true to yourself and those you care for. You go, son, where you're needed most. And right now, that isn't with us. Okay, so you know how Sam is the best kid? Ma Guthrie is the best ma. Yeah, he comes by it honest. He, he really does. I love his family. I love the Guthries. After this, as he's sort of finally coming to terms with what's going on, there's another emergency call. Sam gets a call from one of Lila's bandmates that her plane has crashed and is missing. He doesn't know how much Sam can do, but having someone else who can look from the air would help, and Sam's like, of course, he goes to help, and Josh asks to come with him. Yeah, which I like, because Josh has basically hated Sam up until this point. All their interactions have been terrible. Well, that's because Josh is scared, you know, in the same way that Sam is scared that he no longer has a place back at home. Josh is scared that Sam is going to come in and take away the place that Josh has built for himself. Absolutely, yeah. And so Sam and Josh fly around. It's not long before they find the wreckage of the plane. And um, they realize that they really can't get in. They can't get through. Josh thinks he's small enough to do so. And he does and finds Dazzler, who's the only conscious person who was on the plane. She's been uh, working with Lila's band. So Dazzler uh, says that she could cut her way out with her light powers, but she needs some kind of sound to power it. And Josh, who's a musician and who will later find out, actually has the mutant power of having a voice with a range beyond that of a normal human sings, Dazzler does so, and they're free. They get Lila and the other band member out of the plane. Lila and Sam reconcile, and as it turns out, among other things, Dazzler reveals that Lila, in fact, didn't steal the statue. She mined the crystal and made it herself. Yeah, so Sam feels like a total jerk because, well, he kind of was. He totally was. You know, even if she'd stolen it, he would have been a total jerk. And the issue ends with her on the stoop of the Guthrie's house, along with Sam, in a really, I, I think truly outrageous might be a good phrase here. I think that's definitely an, an accurate descriptor. It uh, is indeed truly outrageous. Her, that is her outfit. Um, it is excitement. It is adventure. And Sam's like, oh, well, uh, let's go in. And she's like, okay, hey, I was just messing with you. I just needed to know you'd bring me even looking like this. And changes, you know, after teleporting briefly into something much more conservative. And they go in and presumably have a lovely, very Southern dinner. I would assume so. Now, with that sort of warm, fuzzy palate cleanser, we go back into our next team story. This is called Getting Even, and it is going to feature our favorite Technicolor New Wave scamps, the Hellions. Oh, yes. I, I love the Hellions. I think the New Mutants is such a stronger book because of their presence. I talked about the principle of no unambiguous villains, which I'll wave a little bit this particular issue for one character. Mm -hmm. But the Hellions are a great example of that because they are they are antagonists. They're rivals without being villains. So, yeah, we start the issue with Roberto da Costa, Sunspot, coming back from his vacation to see his mother in Nova Roma and bringing gifts back for all of the team. Continuing the idea of, of individual character-driven or character-focused stories, while this is a team book, it's also kind of Bobby's story. Now, Bobby ditched the team before the Beyonder killed them all off, I believe. He was having a lousy day. He drove into New York, had brief superhero hijinks, and decided, you know, screw this. He was going to fly to South America and visit his mom, which meant he got to skip out on Secret Wars too. Good choices, Bobby. Good plan to Costa. Before he arrives back at the school, he's flying back with his mother and his classmates all mob him as he's flying in, which seems like a really terrible idea. Bobby's mom just kind of takes it in stride, as Danny's parents did, and as Sam's mom presumably has with Lila. And 
I really love the idea of an Xavier School PTA. Oh man, they would just all be these very confused but understanding parents. Like they have periodic bake sales. I love this plan. Ideally, someone has mutant baking power. I feel like that should be part oh, of Oh, I assume that must be a thing at some point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so Bobby gets back and, you know, they're all playing around and he uh, is giving gifts to everyone he left behind. And when he goes to give his presents to Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander, who have been working for the school. And who have had the worst string of luck ever of all time. He hears about what happened. Most recently, that being empath of the Hellions having basically messed with their minds to the point where they're kind of shattered husks of human beings. And he discovers also that none of his classmates and not his esteemed professor who he does not trust in the least, it's Magneto, have not gone off for revenge. And obviously you gotta do that. Perhaps it was a mistake to return. I was better off with my memories of when the New Mutants really were heroes. Oh, Bobby, you're adorable. And so he convinces them, like, hey, we have got to make this guy pay after all he's done, and the New Mutants go after Empath. They come up with this complicated revenge scheme that involves ripping him into limbo and basically just throwing him around and messing with his head a lot. And it's really satisfying because Empath is horrible. Like, Empath is, is again, one of the few fairly unambiguous villains, and it feels more and more satisfying until Doug finally stops them, like, midway through. Yes, Cypher is about to clock Empath and says, no, wait a minute. He was a bully, and now we're just being bullies. This is not right. Yeah, this is wrong. This is not justice. This is revenge, and we're not helping anybody. If this is what it means to be superheroes, I'm out. Cypher is so good. I love Cypher as, like, the moral and logical compass of the team. Yeah, I completely agree. He's wonderful, especially in this era. Not long after this, the Hellions themselves do show up, having used the technology of the Massachusetts Academy to track Empath, and say, hey, we'll take it from here. Um, Mirage immediately makes it clear, we don't want to fight, we were just here for Empath. Uh, and the and Hellions are like, yeah, we're so sorry about him, he is the worst. And Cypher actually says to the Hellions, he doesn't deserve you, to which Thunderbird replies, those are the breaks. As part of the team, maybe he'll get better. On his own, no way. Which, yeah, hooray for compassion. Yeah, and so... Sort um, of, although honestly, I question how much Empath deserves and how safe it is to bring him back since he can just manipulate all of them pretty much willy-nilly. Well, Thunderbird does make it clear that he's not going to take any more crap from Empath. But does he really have a choice if Empath decides that he's going to do that? Hard to say. So, yeah, this is a, a slighter issue than the previous two, but it is really satisfying, and it is nice that Claremont doesn't forget about something that very much was a dangling plot thread. It's a good reset moment, and it's a good way to bring back together most of the team, to reestablish both where they were and the dynamics they had, and who they are and how they've changed coming into this. Yeah. And the next issue, uh, number 44, sort of follows up on that, because the last time we saw Rain Sinclair, Wolfsbane, she was in Scotland, and that's where we start. Right. She is hanging out with Moira McTaggart, her adoptive mother, Charles Xavier's ex, and the official awesome multi-purpose mad scientist of your island. Mm -hmm. Not actually mad, just scientist. But she's a scientist in the Reed Richards vein in that she has specializations in literally anything you need a scientist for that's plot convenient. Pretty much, yeah. Now, there's a giant piece of Jack Kirby-esque machinery that randomly falls and is about to crush her on Muir Island. Rain Sinclair tries to save her and fails. The person who is able to is the young mutant Legion who we've seen before on Muir Island. Now, Legion is David Haller. He is the son of Charles Xavier and Gabrielle Haller, and he is a complicated individual. He has dissociative identity disorder for a combination of psychiatrically somewhat dubious narrative reasons and some supernatural mutant stuff. And the relevant detail here is that each of his personalities has a different mutant power. 
Now, at the end of the last Legion arc, the New Mutants and Professor Xavier managed to put him back in control of his mind and body, but in order to save her, he lets out the very evil telekinetic personality, that being Jack Wayne. Right. Jack Wayne is basically a sociopath. Jack Wayne wants to run wild, does not want to be locked up in David's mind, and he'll do pretty much anything to get that. And so Jack Wayne saves Moira, and at that point, he uses the power of one of the other personalities blows up this machinery, which across the world wakes up Danielle Moonstar due to her psychic link with Rain. Right, because Rain goes wolf form, and when Rain is in wolf form, she's psychically linked to Danielle Moonstar, and oh my god, these powers are ridiculous. <laughs> Danny wakes up in a panic and goes to find Ilyana Rasputin to hopefully teleport her to Scotland. Who has the best signs on her bedroom door ever. I'm going to stick those in the as mentioned, but I love how utterly like matter-of-fact and blasé and silly Ilyana is about her being the demon sorceress ruler of a hell dimension these days. Mm -hmm. And the resulting screams from Danny after she sees a bunch of demony stuff in the bedroom Whoops. bring the rest of the new mutants over there, who quickly volunteer to come with her to Scotland to make sure that Rain's okay, with one exception, that being Roberto. And he really, really doesn't want to go back into limbo. Now, it's been alluded to many times before that Roberto is scared of limbo and also scared of Liana herself. He's being all blustery and macho as he usually is, saying, no, 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 I just think that Rain's fine, that's all. But he is eventually sort of guilted and shamed into coming with them. I love the way Bobby blusters. I mean, I've mentioned before that I feel like he is, you know, one of the cool things about New Mutants is what a range of incredibly letter-accurate teenagers there are in it. And he is so, so much that. Mm-hmm. And so, in fact, to sort of stick with his story that he thinks everything's fine, he just goes there in a perfect Magnum P.I. Hawaiian shirt instead of his New Mutants uniform. I'd like to think that that's like his security shirt, that when he needs to feel <laughs> super badass, he dresses up like Magnum P.I., because that's basically what I would do. I mean, I have a Thor t-shirt with four blue dots on it that's pretty much that for me, so I'll totally buy that. They quickly become aware that, yes, something very bad did happen. The lab was largely blown up, but they find that Rain and Moira McTaggart are actually okay. The person who's not there, however, is Legion. He has left. You know who is totally there, though? Warlock. Warlock is so awesome. Yeah, so they get into Warlock, who turns himself into this sort of, like, submarine helicopter cartoon duck thing. I love that all of his machine forms are vaguely, like, anthropomorphic animal versions. Like, is there a word for that? Zoopomorphic? Presumably. I'm, I'm gonna just, go ahead I'm and just say making that. words up now. Like, his blackbird is a blackbird. His ship version is a duck. And uh, he takes them to the town of Olapool, the port town, where Jack Wayne, who's taken over the body of David, of course, has gone to go carousing. Long story short, they get into a big fight with Jack Wayne. He gets out of there, and as they wake up, they are greeted amid the flames that's left from the fight by Reverend Craig, Wolfsbane's terrible adoptive father. And a biological father, as it happens, but we're not going to find that out for, like, 20 years, and it's not really relevant anyway. And he basically just pops up to, like, be a dick and then disappears. It's entirely gratuitous and pointless. They do eventually track Legion down, which is to say Jack Wayne, and manage to defeat him specifically by Roberto holding him tightly enough that he can't get away, Magic teleporting him to Limbo, and Jack Wayne eventually, being a coward at heart, relinquishing control to the other personalities so the demons don't tear him apart. Aw. Yeah. You know, that's basically the story, aside from Rain feeling really furious at Reverend Craig and thus all of Scotland after what he says. Well, the townspeople whom he whipped into a mob to come after her with shotguns and pitchforks. She's angry at a fairly specific population segment in that town. Mm -hmm. 
you could unfavorably compare the story to Legion's first appearance. I mean, that was this three-issue surreal Bilsenkevich epic, but I don't think it's really a fair comparison. Right. That story is about Legion. This story is about the New Mutants. Exactly. It's really about their team dynamic, about Roberto getting over his fear and his bravado to be honest. It's about Rain letting her anger finally come out. It's about Warlock being adorable. That sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's about reestablishing. I mean, it's the getting the band back together story. It's where they collect their last missing member. And it's where they reestablish all of the individual and group dynamics that we've seen, not necessarily severed, but stretched and changed over Secret Wars 2 and Massachusetts Academy arcs. Mm -hmm. And now that the band is back together, it is time for some tragedy in the last issue we're going to be covering today. Right. So here's the weird thing about New Mutants number 45. When it's flashed back to, which it is fairly regularly, it's almost always flashed back to in a continuity error. Yeah, and we'll get to that as we get to the end of the issue, but it's very strange. Right, it's possible that this is going to start to sound familiar, and then especially the last scene is going to be super familiar, and then you're going to realize it's a completely different story. Yeah. So this is a story about a kid by the name of Larry Bedeen, and... Larry is a kid who the New Mutants meet at a dance. They periodically have, you know, cross dances with the local high school. And he is a kid who's kind of on the edges of things. He's, I think, fairly recently relocated. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really have any friends. And the other kids tease him and, you know, call him a mutie because he's a weird kid. And he and Kitty both. Kitty is with the New Mutants in at least this context because, you know, she's their age and is nominally also still a student at the Xavier School. He and Kitty are becoming, you know, really, really hitting it off over the evening, really close friends, you know, sharing spiked punch. Meanwhile, the other New Mutants and Magneto actually are, are navigating the dance with varying degrees of grace. And one of the things I really love specifically about Magneto is him talking to the headmaster of the school that is hosting this dance. And we haven't really seen him very often in the role of a pure, not only teacher, but administrator of a school, someone in charge of these children. And you can just, you can tell so clearly he's trying so hard to be exactly what this woman is, to be a good mentor and protector and teacher of his charges. Right. He's scared no matter how hard he tries, no matter what he does, he's going to, you know, let them down that the moment his attention is turned away, something terrible is going to happen. And she doesn't know that he has he has very specific concerns as far as the sorts of things that can happen. But I think having him be the one to voice those fears is really significant in this story because that is what happens, but it's not one of his students. Yeah. It's this sort of magical evening for Kitty and Larry and the rest of the New Mutants who are hanging out with them. Well, except for Danny, who decides she's sick of the dance midway through and leaves on her flying horse. And they're all getting along really, really well, just messing around. They go to Harry's hideaway after the dance. They go back to the Xavier Institute after that. And one of the things we learn actually earlier on when Danny's leaving is that Larry is, in fact, a mutant. It's just that none of the people who've been calling him a mutie know that. He can make these really beautiful light sculptures. And he sees Danny flying away and wonders if, you know, maybe that means that she's like him. But he doesn't say anything to her and he doesn't say anything to anyone else. Exactly. They have this great night, and Larry's really excited. He's finally not only found a girl he really likes and who seems to really like him, but maybe a group of friends, maybe a community. And then he ruins it. He ruins it hard, and he ruins it specifically by starting to tell a super racist anti-mutant joke that the kids who were harassing him told. Yeah, he's just sort of trying to fit in. He's trying to get a laugh out of them, and the room goes cold. And the rest of the new mutants are basically like, yeah, we're done here. You need to go home. We're going to head off. We're done. Yeah, and Kitty even goes so far as to say, I thought you were nice, but apparently not. And so he goes back home. He doesn't know what to do. He thinks about calling his parents who are traveling. He tries to get drunk, and but hates the taste of alcohol. And he heads up to his room where we see what his mutant power does. 
in the grandest way we've seen it so far. He's got this gigantic statue made of light of the Challenger space shuttle. Yeah, it's really, really lovely. And someone else sees it, too. And that's Rain, who's followed him in her wolf form to try to figure out what's going on. Yeah, and I love her thought bubble here. Oh, wait till I tell the others. They'll be so surprised and pleased because everyone mostly likes him till he told those silly, hurtful jokes. I knew he didn't mean them. Now, speaking of silly, hurtful jokes, meanwhile, Larry's classmates have decided that they are going to pull a hilarious prank because, you know, they've been teasing him and calling him a mutie. They have no idea that he's actually a mutant. And there's this group that's been running these ads about how if you're having trouble with mutants, they'll get them for you. And that is X Factor. And so they call him. They already left sort of a note saying someone would anonymously. And they call him saying it's too late. X Factor's been called. So one of the things that I think is interesting about this, and I want to go back to the theme I brought up before of no unambiguous villains. We actually see them planning this at the dance and going back and forth about whether it's okay for them to do it. Because a couple of them are concerned, like, you know, this is taking it too far. And the ones who are pushing are saying, no, no, it's a joke. He'll, he'll know it's a joke. Obviously, we'd never actually do this thing. This is something that you see a lot in portrayals of bullying in comics. I feel like you, you see two kind of extreme versions. And one of them is someone is just a total bad guy. And the other one is someone is totally taking out personal hurt and has, you know, some kind of horrible home situation or backstory. That's what we saw in, in the very early New Mutants issue, the Who's Scaring Stevie story. Which is the one that this kind of reminds With me the of. With stalker. Although I think um, this is much more successful. And I think this nails something that's a lot more accurate and a lot more common, which is that, like, the majority of people are fairly uncomplicatedly non-malicious it's just that they don't really see past their own lack of malice to the potential consequences of the shit they do. And speaking of those consequences, the next morning as the New Mutants are having breakfast and Rain's about to share her good news, Magneto comes in with some bad news, that being that Larry Bodine, last night, killed himself. You know, the, the New Mutants don't really know what to make of this. I mean, they, they didn't know him very well, yeah. Right, and that's one of the things that I actually kind of like about it, that it's not someone who's a super close friend of theirs, that they're having to parse this as outsiders as well. And in the danger room, they're all sort of thinking about, what does this mean? Like, Ilyana doesn't care, Danny feels responsible, Sunspot just says he's a coward for taking his own life. Warlock is completely baffled, and man, there are a lot of New Mutant stories about death. And I'm going to go ahead and say that the saddest part of any New Mutants story about death is someone having to explain it to Warlock. He just doesn't get it, why you would end your own life, and why, if you were to die, you wouldn't just give your life glow to someone you cared about. This just does not compute to him. Right, it's painful, it's baffling, it's wasteful. It's actually, <laughs> it reminds me so much of the Tick live-action episode where Arthur discovers that the Tick just has no concept of death, and he's trying to explain, the Tick keeps on being like, even horses? Even potatoes? And then finally, just, even you? Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, the warlock thing, you could see it as a little humorous, but really it's just sad. This whole issue, you know, 30 years after it came out, remains heartbreaking. Yeah, you could tell me that this had come out last week, and I would be slightly confused as to why there weren't cell phones in it, and otherwise I would absolutely take it as red. Yeah. And so Kitty just feels awful about what happened. She feels like it's her fault for, you know, as soon as he told those jokes, just leaving. She phases into his house and she sees the space shuttle. She realizes what happened and she reaches out to touch it. And it just disintegrates. Yeah. And she's crushed. Rain comes to meet her and they both just hold each other in sorrow, realizing what happened, what maybe they could have prevented if they'd known better, what maybe Larry himself could have prevented if he'd just 
been a little less scared and had been honest with him, if they'd lived in a world tolerant enough for him to feel comfortable doing so. So they react to this in two very different ways, too. Rain is furious. She wants to track down the kids who were teasing him, the ones who threatened to call X Factor. And she's not sure what she wants to do, but she's definitely in wolf form wearing a trench coat and a fedora in a mall. And the New Mutants stop her, saying, hey, they're going to be paying for this for the rest of their lives. No matter what they're saying right now about not caring, we couldn't do anything worse to them than what they've already done to themselves. Kitty sees it somewhat differently. And the next time we see Kitty, she is at Larry's memorial service, I guess at his school. And she is giving a speech that we're going to see referenced and especially visually panels of it clipped for years and years and years in X-Books. And almost every time that happens... It is going to be represented as Doug Ramsey's funeral. Which it is absolutely not. Which is so weird to me because it's such a specific memorable moment. And almost every time, like she's flashing back to people who've died and, and Doug's mentioned and like going through funerals, this is the scene it cuts back to. And it's a totally different person. But this scene right here, for me, this may be one of the most effective scenes in all of New Mutants. This one has stuck with me since the first time I read it when I was a kid, and reading it again, it still hits home. You want to go ahead and just do the speech from the funeral? Because I don't know if we're actually going to put most of it better than Kitty did, although I really do wish that she would move away from the tactic of reciting strings of racial slurs to make points. And that line I'm actually going to pull out of it for the purposes of this episode, but other than that... Yeah, we'll put the whole thing up on the as-mentioned. Some of you know me, most don't. I'm here because I guess I knew Larry Bodine best, but that isn't saying much. I hardly knew him at all. If I had, maybe we wouldn't be at this memorial assembly. Who was he, then, that we gathered to mourn him? Who am I? A four-eyed, flat-chested brat, chick, brain, hebe, stuck-up Xavier snob freak. Don't like the words? I could use nicer. I've heard worse. Who here hasn't? So often, so casually, that maybe we've forgotten the power they have to hurt. But usually, we laugh it off or hit back. With words of our own, or fists. Or we suffer in silence. No big deal. This is the rough edge of reality, right? Why make a fuss? Trouble was, when someone labeled Larry Bodine a mutie, they hit home, because he was. His power created beauty. That's it. He did with light and color what Mozart did with music. And he wanted nothing more than to be accepted by his peers, and possibly even liked. And isn't that what any of us really want? To have friends? People to care for us. Not to be alone. If we're lucky, we have someone to turn to. Larry didn't. He thought if people knew the truth, they'd stop seeing him and see only the label, the brand, his personal scarlet letter. So he hid the truth and lived in terror of being discovered. He even joined in when others put mutants down. What matter the cost to his soul if it made his life a little better? That's the tragedy. That's our shame. Think of what you say. Imagine it being said about you. It's easy to make fun, real easy to be cruel. Try sometime being on the receiving end. If we're to learn anything from Larry's death, it should be this. You want to know who I am? I'm Catherine Pride. That's the only thing that matters. The rest are just labels. So I want to talk about that because it came up again and there's something that I don't know if it's a deliberate callback to that scene, but I suspect that it may be just considering the depth of Bendis's knowledge of the earlier stuff. And that's something that came up in the last couple of years in X-Men, and that is Kitty's response to Havoc's M-word speech from Uncanny Avengers. And that's where Havoc talks about how he hates what he calls the M-word because he sees the mutant label as being something that just divide people from one another, that, you know, create these false, uh, these false separatisms. And Kitty's response to that, I love because, you know, we've talked a lot about characters changing, the idea of dynamic characters. And for me, that response is very much this character grown up. I'm Jewish. I don't have a quote-unquote Jewish-sounding name. I don't look or sound Jewish, whatever that looks or sounds like. 
So if you didn't know I was Jewish, you might not know unless I told you. Same goes for my mutation. I don't have to wear a visor or have blue fur all over me. I can walk around, just a young woman of the world, but I'm not. When I was 13, before my mutation kicked in, I was in love with this boy at school. In love. And I followed him around like a puppy dog because I was an idiotic 13-year-old girl. And one day he saw a rabbi walking across the street and he made the worst anti-Semitic comment ever. I won't even repeat it. He just said this awful thing and laughed, laughed and laughed. And, and my heart sank. And then my blood boiled. I mean, boiled. I turned around to him and I growled, I'm Jewish. And he just stared at me like he didn't even realize he said something wrong or he didn't know how to compute what I just said. But when I got home after I was done crying my eyes out, you know, my first heartbreak, I realized I was maybe for the first time ever, I was really proud of myself. I am Jewish. I am a mutant. And I want people to know who and what I am. I tell people because, hey, if we're going to have a problem with it, I'd like to know. The ways Kitty's stance on that sort of changes and matures over the years is great and I think is, again, a very, very organic evolution. Um, how she's been written over the years and characters who are and aren't allowed to grow up in X-Men really vary, but she is one who's been given, I think, more room than most to mature. Absolutely. So, yeah, there you have it. Five standalone issues of New Mutants that still kind of feel like an arc. On that cheerful and upbeat note, you've got questions. Derek Smith emailed us to ask, Recently, issue number 10 of Mark Wade's current Daredevil run concluded an arc with a simple yet effective and emotional narrative on the horrors of depression. I've suffered from moderate to severe clinical depression for years, and I finally began treatment several months ago. Being a lifelong X-Men fan, I was wondering if you have recommendations for any issues, arcs, or titles that successfully explore depression or other mental illnesses. Reading comics, especially X-Men titles, is a great support system. Okay, first of all, I want to highly, highly recommend that Daredevil run to anyone who hasn't read it. This is the one currently going on. Wade wrote, I think, series three and four of Daredevil. They are both spectacularly good, and I, yeah, I cannot recommend them highly enough. The short answer to your question with regards to X-Books, unfortunately, is no. We've seen mental illness addressed sometimes, and when it is, it's almost always in context of or in relation to either supernatural stuff or mutant powers. So, for example, I would put Seisbrayer's run on X-Men Legacy, and in general, the treatment of the character Legion in the second category, although it's also come closest to being one of the best and most direct instances of mental illness being addressed in an X-Book. And actually, we talked to Sai about that at some length in, I think, episode 41, where we, we talked about Legion and about Sai's run on Legacy. That said, I'm picking my brain for other instances, maybe the beginning of the most recent X-Factor series where Doug Ramsey is actively suicidal. Although, again, the resolution for that is so bad and it's never really addressed again. And I think it's also important to distinguish between characters having a really rough time due to specific events occurring and characters with chronic depression, because those are very different things and the latter is really addressed not nearly as much. There's also a really important distinction to be drawn between coding and actually naming stuff. And we're going to talk about that a lot more in context of one of the other questions this episode, but I don't think it's been done that well or that satisfyingly. There are occasional exceptions, but for the most part, there's nothing that comes remotely close to the way Wade directly addressed and handled depression in Daredevil. There's honestly, there's very little in superhero comics, period, that even comes close to that. And that's a shame. So on a somewhat different note, Glasses and Fandoms asks on Tumblr, hey, I'm new to comics and how do you store them? Like not old first edition worth $100 comics, but just normal trade paperbacks that come out any other week. I mean, the stereotype is keeping them in boxes or whatever, but where do you even get those? 
As someone who has bought far, far too many comics, I can absolutely address that question. First, though, a semantic moment. So I'm going to make this distinction because it's going to affect storage. Trade paperbacks are collections of comics that are basically paperback books, things with spines that have wit. The comics you're thinking of that go in boxes, the bagged and boarded ones that come out every week, those are usually referred to as pamphlets. And those are the terms you're going to want to use when you're talking to someone at your comic shop about what you're looking for storage for, because again, it's going to affect your options. Right. You can also call those pamphlets single issues or floppies, or there are a number of names. But yeah, so generally speaking, you want to do uh, two things when you're protecting a single issue. You want to prevent it from getting scraped or scuffed or prevent it from getting wet. And you also want to prevent it from getting bent out of shape, you know, from not being flat. And so what most people use for those are mylar bags, which are sized for the comics themselves, and sort of cardboard acid-free boards that go inside those mylar bags. And so thus you have your external protection, you also have them given structure. Now, if you're going to be storing a lot of these, that does definitely make them thicker, and so they are going to take up more space. But if you're concerned about rereading them or collecting them as much as no one does that for money anymore then that's probably the way to do it. Boxes you've heard about, there are two major types. Those are short boxes and long boxes, which are basically what they sound like. They're, again, sized for just a stack of comics, one in front of the other in front of the other. And really, whether you go for a long box or a short box, that's going to entirely depend on how much room you have, how you're planning on storing them. I believe very strongly in storage based on utility. And the way you're going to want to store your comics is very much going to depend on why you're storing them. If you are storing them mostly to keep them, if you want to have a lot of issues from a run, have them in order, but not necessarily get to them a lot, bagging and boarding them and sticking them in short boxes or long boxes and putting them in a closet or under your bed or something, that's awesome. Just write what's in each box on the end of it so you can get to it and see what's there. And if you need to dig something out, you can. However, If you plan to go into them a lot, if you want to be able to access them, I would recommend investing in a drawer system. You can DIY this. You can build your own or you can get uh, cardboard drawers that are actually disassemblable and reassemblable at comic shops that are, again, sized for these and are slightly longer than standard short boxes. You can also hack a legal size filing cabinet, put in a central divider and have two rows in each drawer. And if you're really into it, if this is a lifestyle choice for you, this is on our list, our big bucket list of someday when we can afford this kind of ridiculousness thing. There are people who make incredibly beautiful wooden comics cabinets that are basically filing cabinets for comics. And that's another thing because you can't read the spines because they're magazine type things are floppy issues. You want to have a horizontal system where the comics are in vertically and then they're labeled in sections, usually in numerical order with dividers between series. Kind of like what you've seen at a record store with records or CDs or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So a couple options. As for trade paperbacks, you know, bookshelves are great for them. They make bags for them if you want to protect them further. But generally speaking, a bookshelf should be fine. And again, how you store them is going to depend on how much you want to be able to access them and how you organize your other books and what systems are going to work for you. All right, we have a third question this week. An anonymous listener asks via Tumblr, I've seen a couple of pages from a comic where one of the X-Men, I forgot who, figures out that Monet has autism. Is that still canon? Also, how well did the writer of that comic handle the topic? I'm wondering because I was recently diagnosed with autism. By recently, I mean literally 14 hours ago. I'm thinking that reading a comic about one of the X-Men having autism, especially if her teammates are okay with it, would make me more okay with my own diagnosis. Okay. Anonymous, this is going to be a slightly deep dive in two different directions. The scene you're talking about did happen. Um, It happened in an issue of Generation X, and the X-Men in question was Beast, who diagnosed Monet with autism based on her periodically retreating into a catatonic state, which I suspect you already know why I'm going to say this is a problem. It's based on, a the, again, the sort of facile, very limited, very, you know, for comic sense of what this means, the same thing that leads to Legion being labeled as autistic in his first appearance. For continuity reasons, it's even more complicated. Right. And that's because that wasn't actually Monet St. Croix. That was really Claudette, one of her sisters. 
So Monet got, uh, let's just keep it simple and say she went away for a while because that would be an entire another episode to explain it. This is going to be a cold open someday. Absolutely. And so her uh, sisters, who were twins, basically took over as her. They kind of merged themselves into a new person that looked exactly like her. If you've ever seen the movie Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, they basically did the station move. Yes, except that instead of having a righteous Martian butt, they instead looked exactly like Monet, who has a righteous non-Martian butt. For a long time, the character we knew as M was really these two sisters merged together, and Monet was nowhere to be found. One of the sisters was, in fact, this sort of simplified Marvel Universe definition of autistic the other was not. So continuity aside, man, I wish I had a better answer for you because this is something I've ended up having a lot of conversations about, especially on Tumblr. And the answer, again, as with the question about depression, is no, not explicitly. There are definitely, definitely characters in X-Men and in superhero comics in general who have been consistently portrayed in ways that it's very, very easy to read as autistic. I mean, Cyclops is my go-to example for this just because a lot of the characteristics that make him my go-to point of identification are also characteristics that are common to individuals um, on the autism spectrum. But when you're looking for those points of identification, it's really hard to distinguish what's supposed to be there, what's written as part of the characterization, and what I'm I'm seeing there because I'm going looking for it. Your best bet at this point, as the line currently stands, I think are going to be finding characters and looking for coding, looking for portrayals, more than looking for specific labels and words, because this is just something that the X-Men have not done, and the few times they have are, again, archaic, radically oversimplified, limited movie versions of, of what autism actually is. And for what it's worth, um, we very much feel that it's totally okay and appropriate and good to apply whatever interpretation to the comics works for you. If you can find meaning in a comic by looking at a character a certain way, then that's awesome and you absolutely should. Yeah, and something that has been pointed out a lot with regards to headcanons, with regards to interpretations of characters, and that I think could stand to be brought up loudly and frequently is that for the most part, we assume that characters fit into norms because they are not specified otherwise. That goes both ways. And this is an imperfect answer. Again, this is frustrating. This is looking to subtext for reflections and identifications, and you shouldn't have to do that. But sometimes it's the option that's on the table. And so that's the best I can recommend. Our email address is on our website. And if you want to contact us, I would be happy to discuss this further privately. But yeah, I wish I had a better answer for you there. Uh, in the meantime, we are out of time. So let's close it out. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and lots of other stuff. Our show is completely listener-supported and ad-free, and is made possible by our generous Patreon supporters. If you'd like to become one of those supporters, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, we'll be taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming for our second semi-annual giant size special. Just as soon as we're done shuffling the cards and filling in the character sheets. Hope we survive the experience. Hope we survive the experience.